Um, I feel like every time I come up, I always start with like, oh man, the Holy Spirit set me up perfectly. And, and I, that's not like just something that I say. <laughs> that's something that I actually like, it's cool. And I don't want to take any of the credit for it by like making you think that I've bribed the people to give the words that they give. But what Katie brought talking about, uh, you know, who do you say the Son of God is? And then what was brought after that with uh, what, what do we give Jesus? Th- those are the two main questions that I've, I've wanted to explore today. And so uh, the sermon's done. Again, they did it better than I could and with less time. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, bye. Um, the driving question that I, 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 like I said, I want to explore, that all of us get to explore, is that question, who is God to you? And following that with what authority does he have in your life? And so who is God? Who is the Son of Man? And what are we giving him? What, what is his authority? What does he uh, ask of you? And, and how is that established in who he is? Um, have you ever met someone and they start with, don't you know who I am? If you've worked at Starbucks, you have. Um, it just looks a little bit differently um, because if you didn't know, I worked at Starbucks for a year when I moved here. And uh, so then I was just this little little barista just trying to get by, just trying to do a drive through without getting honked at or yelled at. And then someone comes up to the window and hits you with, oh, just my usual thanks. And you're like, oh. <laughs> so you look at this little camera, like trying to figure it out, thinking it'll help. Don't know who this person is. So you say, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I have no idea who you are. And they're like, oh, you must be new. Because they love me here. They know exactly who I am. Just tell them it's Big Poppy. And then he drives away. And you're like, who this? And you go on your headset. You're like, who is this guy? And they're like, oh, that's like Tim. He orders a black coffee. You're like, well, why don't, <laughs> why don't you just say that? Like, why don't you just say black coffee? I didn't use an actual person, but maybe I did. <laughs> it's Sam. Uh, no. <laughs> Pastor Big Poppy, yeah. <laughs> this kind of plays into authority a little bit. Because um, as, as a regular at Starbucks, you get certain perks, right? Because then, then I worked there for a little bit. And then I started to realize that people come in religiously every single day and order the exact same thing. So then after like a month when they say my usual, I'm like, yeah, for sure. And then they just motor on through, right? There's, there's an authority or there's like benefits that come with, uh, the, with loyalty and kind of like faithfulness in, in the Starbucks community. And, uh, and God himself has revealed his authority to us by showing his might in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so we're going to be working through who is God, what is his authority, and we're doing that in the book of Isaiah. So we're, we're back in that book this morning, looking into the names attributed to Jesus as Savior of the world, and, and Rachel did a great job last week where she, where she set us off with wonderful counselor, but, but first established the power of names. Oh, in, in, in the Bible, in biblical names, they, they carry with them stories, whether, whether a promised hope of what this person will do or, or a reflection on what they have done in the past. And so Isaiah, he was writing at about 700 BC, and he was writing, he was a prophet in the time when Israel was about to go into exile. So he's writing in the time where there was many warnings of judgment because of their unrepentant sin. And so uh, he had this very unpopular mission to reveal that there is sin among the people of God. And if they turn and repent, there will be forgiveness and restoration. But if there's no turning, there will be judgment. 
in, in this exile to, to Assyria. And so his message was this, God will judge those who persist in stubborn and arrogant sin, and he'll restore those who repent. And so in that is where he writes, uh, where we find Isaiah 9, who says this, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice. They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burden from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod, just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms, bloodstained by war, will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire for a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So God, as we look into your word, I, I pray and ask more of you and less of me that it would be your word and your spirit that speaks this morning more so than, than anything I can say. And so, God, what is not of you would be forgotten. What is of you, I ask that it would be cemented in our hearts, so that we'd be transformed. Praise in your name. Amen. So we often take this, uh, this wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and, uh, and we take this beautiful kind of Christmas passage, and we put it on the background of our phones, and it's, one, and it's great, and it's encouraging. And it is. But the power of this passage really comes from the context. It comes from, from what it was being written into, what was, what was the place where this was being revealed. The verse before our passage, Isaiah is highlighting uh, not the goodness of Israel, that, that, that they deserve something very wonderful. He's, he's highlighting the depravity of Israel. He's saying, you're facing invasion, you're facing exile, and yet you still turn to necromancers and, and psychics overturning to God. You still find comfort and peace in other things rather than turning to the God of your ancestors. And because of this, you are in the dark, surrounded by darkness, and gloom and despair is going to consume you. Then the wonderful counselor. <laughs> and then after that, he expresses this hope in this messianic, or, or the messianic, this savior, anointed one who's going to come and, and, and save the world from their sin. And so this title of wonderful God and, and, or wonderful counselor, mighty God, expresses that. And then afterwards, he says, yet you will turn to your own ways. You will continue to build your own kingdoms. You will devour one another because your leaders will continue to lead you astray. And it will spark the, the just and righteous anger of God. So the face with exile, division, hopelessness, despair, and in that, the messianic hope is revealed. He's not revealed when there's great success in the nation. He's not revealed when, when they have earned something. The promise of a savior is revealed when all things have failed and all hope is lost. It says that those in the dark have seen a great light a new way, a new king, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. These titles, they become this breath of fresh air for those longing for God to reveal himself in strength. It's in this anticipated hope for a people broken by oppression who have been tossed away because of ethnicity or, or religion within this name is the hope of an entire nation, which is mighty God. 
And I know right away we want to get to Jesus. And I love Jesus, big fan. Um, but like we talked about, names hold this weight because of what has been attributed to those names in the past. We know God is the mighty one because he's been mighty in the past. So we can trust he will be mighty now. So we know he will continue to be mighty in the future. So instead of jumping right to Jesus, I want to unpack, or, or I guess I want to pack uh, this name, Mighty God, with the salvation, the, the history of salvation that it deserves. Is that okay? Is that fun? <laughs> in the Old Testament, Mighty God, this is a name that is given to God himself, Yahweh. When we say Yahweh, that is the name that God self-identified as in the Old Testament. And so if you're reading the Old Testament and you see the word Lord, and Lord is uh, all in caps, what that name is, is Yahweh. This is the God who called Abraham as, as the father of nations. This is the God who freed Israel from Egyptian slavery through the plagues and then through the exodus. This is the God who appeared at Mount Sinai and gave the law, the, the true king of kings, the God of gods, as stated in Deuteronomy 10. Our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love in Nehemiah 9. O great and mighty God, Lord of hosts over all creation. That's how Jeremy, Jeremiah 32 says. In the title, Mighty God, is packed the entire narrative of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Is packed, this is the creator of the universe who, who brings order to chaos. This is the God who is king of every kingdom, sovereign over all nations. And as, I, as Isaiah puts it, he rules with justice and with righteousness. Mighty God. And we need to understand the authority from which God speaks to us in our lives, right? We love the, the I am a friend of God motif. And, and it's a beautiful reality for the intimacy that we can have with God. But, but the authority that God offers us is through his, uh, his revelation as king, right? He offers intimacy as a friend, but authority of a king in our lives. Isaiah, in his entirety uh, of his prophecy, he describes this mighty God in the terms of holy one, which we sang about this morning. Once again, I did not bribe anyone. Savior, which we also sang about this morning. Father and ruler. Holy one, Savior, Father, ruler. Those are the names that pack mighty God in Isaiah. In chapter 6, he, he sees God and, and, and Isaiah walks into the throne room of God and he declares, holy, holy, holy. Which he, he ascribes to God the most holy position, right? To be holy is to be set apart. That's what the name means. To be holy, holy is to be the most set-apart of the set-aparts. To be holy, holy, holy is to be the author and initiator of what it means to be set-apart. It is the holiest of holies. As the Holy One, God chose Israel to be a holy people, meaning to be set-apart for what? Set-apart to bring glory to God. They were meant to be a beacon of light, reflecting the character and nature of a good and holy God. Their belief and their actions were meant to connect so that they could live morally upright lives so that all would see the goodness of God around them and then follow him and serve him. But their worship was corrupted with disobedience. Their holiness corrupted with unrighteousness and injustice. They lost sight of who God is and what he commands. And so, as we see, God delivered these people who are walking in sin, walking in brokenness, walking in rebellion to the, to the Holy One, they were delivered into exile. 
And this was a form of judgment. This was also a form of purifying, right? Because after the rebellion came restoration. And it's only through the cleansing from, from the Holy One that, that people could be made holy again. So Isaiah doesn't stop with, with the mighty God is holy. He, he continues and said, this mighty God is also Savior. Uh, the name Isaiah, talking about names being important, the name Isaiah actually translates to Yahweh will save. And so one of the big things that he talks about is how God is Savior. Isaiah shared that God's hand will be the one to deliver his people from exile in Assyria or Babylon, but also he's going to be the one who brings individual salvation to the rebellion and brokenness found in each individual in the nation. Yahweh, the mighty one, will will save and restore his people to a place of victory, redemption, righteousness, and justice, and all of it will happen not because the people have done enough to be saved, but because the mighty God will be glorified. To be redeemed or restored or saved, it's never meant to, that's, that's not the end in itself. The people were bought back so that they could worship, right? The enemy was defeated to show that there is no other God than Yahweh alone. I have been saved so that my life can be a testimony, bringing glory to God, bringing others to know and understand who God is, what he can do, his might and his faithfulness which is this theme that runs through, through the whole Bible, where Paul even writes in the New Testament in Ephesians 2, he says, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this because it's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. The boast or the bragging is not found in the person on who the miracle took place. It is the hand who did, who performed the miracle the one who brought restoration, the only one with the authority to do so, the mighty God who is Savior. And Isaiah continues, he's not just Savior, he's not just holy, he's also your father, he's also your king. Isaiah, I learned this week, is is the first time in the Old Testament that God is referred to as father. Israel's been called son, people have been called children, but the intimacy of God uh, being able to be called Father is, is declared in Isaiah. This intimate knowing of, of God uh, builds through Isaiah and then continues into the New Testament as, as intimacy continues to increase. And God is the perfect ruler. And this really is the crown jewel of Isaiah's argument um, because Israel is living in this pluralistic culture. And so for Isaiah to declare that God is the one God, there are no others. This reality would have been uh, mind-blowing to a pluralistic culture of, of many gods who do many things. I think this is also a reality we need in a secular culture where there is no God doing no things. He is not one of many gods. He is not a fabrication for the weak-minded who just need to limp through life and need to grab onto to something. The God of the Bible is is shown and proven as king of kings, lord of lords, the lord of heaven's armies. He's where it all began. He's where it all ends. He's the beginning of meaning. He's the beginning of purpose. He's the beginning of identity and belonging. And he's also the fulfillment of all of those things. I was reading a book, or I am reading a book this week, uh, and and the premise is is basically just a a survey of Christian belief and, and Christian doctrine. Super fun. Very good. But uh, in the, it is, okay? 
in the intro, which is about as far as I made it. Um, <laughs> Because that's all the Lord needed me to read for this sermon, apparently. Anyway, he puts, he puts, uh, he puts the might of God uh, in our culture kind of like this. He says, ask an average, average Christian to talk about God. After getting past the expected answers, you will find that his God is a little God of facilitating or wavering sentiment. He is a God who would like to save the world, but who cannot. He would like to restrain evil, but somehow finds it beyond his power. So he withdraws into semi-retirement, being willing to give good advice in a grandfatherly sort of way, but for the most part, he's left his children to fend for themselves in a dangerous environment. Such a God is not the God of the Bible. Those who know their God perceive the error in that kind of thinking and act accordingly. The God of the Bible is not weak. He is strong. He is almighty. Nothing happens without his permission or apart from his purposes, even evil. Nothing disturbs or puzzles him. His purposes are always accomplished. Therefore, those who know him rightly act with boldness, assured that God is with them to accomplish his desirable purposes in their lives. And that's the end of the quote. And it's uncomfortable that we can't put God in, in, a, in a nice box. And, and with that should come questions, good questions, important questions. What good purposes come from evil? What good, or, or what could be good about the pain that I've endured over this season or over my life? But the strength of God, and likewise the strength of his people, it rests not in my complete understanding of God's purposes or God's will, but in the great reality that God rules. And as his people, we can have a confident hope that all will be set right that the best is yet to come. Our God is not biding his time. He's not waiting to see how it's all going to work out. He's not wishing he could do more than he is doing. God is the great ruler, and in him we have a confident hope for the future. But what does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with Jesus? Right, We're getting there now. Isaiah 44, verse 6 to 8 says, This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Just remember that I am the first and I am the last. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. What was the important part that we, we touched on there? First and last. Let's go forward to Revelation. Ooh, big jump. Revelation 1, verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord God. I am the one who is, the one who always was, and who is still to come, the Almighty One. Alpha, Omega, beginning and end. Let's go to verse 17 and 18 in Revelation 1. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died. But look, I am forever I am alive forever and ever and hold the keys of death and the grave. Beginning and the end, the, the first and the last has now transitioned from, from this almighty God to the one who died and rose again, which is Jesus. Let's go to chapter 22, verse 12. Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am 
the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Behold your mighty God, Jesus Christ, Messiah and Savior. Jesus is not just some guy who came and he died. Jesus is the embodiment of the Holy One of Israel who came to save his people through deliverance and justice and righteousness. He is the reflection of the intimate love of a father in heaven, a divine ruler of all things. Jesus is given the name Alpha and Omega, beginning and end, and he sits in the very position of mighty God. And he lives out the true nature and character of God. And this, this is where Christmas gets wild right? Mighty God, born a baby. Mighty God, placed in, like, sorry, mighty God, born a baby is nuts. I have two daughters, um, one of which is seven months on Monday, and she's just starting to stand up, and we're like, this is so impressive. God was that. God, like, Sam, God. (laughs) Mighty God, a baby who impresses when he stands up. Born in Bethlehem in a manger, mighty God swaddled and crying, mighty God vulnerable and weak, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8. Within the name of Jesus we have the entire story of the Old Testament redemption of God and his people that was found in the name of Yahweh. In Jesus is packed the entire weight of mighty God as described in Isaiah. In Jesus is the expectation and fulfillment of the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God who came to free the world of their sin. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is King. Jesus is mighty God. And he's opened the door to relationship through his death and resurrection so that we can dwell in intimacy with the creator of the universe. Yet, his authority is not in his friendship. His authority is in his rule over our lives. Obedience is at the heart of our intimacy with God. Because that would be, uh, obedience would be an unusual trait uh, of friendship. Right? If I... If I went to Sam, I said, I would love to be friends with you, but I would like you to obey every command that I give you and follow it perfectly. Right? Sam would be like, I do not want to be your friend. (laughs) And you can leave. That's because uh, it would be a peer relationship built on equality, built on on value. But but what the mighty God has offered us in this friendship is, is a covenantal relationship in which we are not equals with God, but we are called miraculously to be partners with God. God has made promises, part of the covenant, promises so that his people would make commitments, promises and commitments. There's two parts. And yet, as his people, we have have failed. And so mighty God came himself to be the necessary covenant partner who fulfills all the commitments of the covenants so that all who follow him can experience the promises of God through the obedience of Christ. That's the beauty of the Christmas story, that through Christ's obedience, we have been given access to the promises of God 
because of what Jesus has done. But then comes the, the very natural human question, well, if the obedience has been complete, then what do I need? Why do I need to do anything? Why can't I just live my life and just accept? But you can. <laughs> Jesus in John 14, 15 says, if you love me, keep my commands. And again in 15, 12 to 14, he says, this is my commandment, love each other in the same way I have loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. And you are my friends if you do what I command. If you love me, keep my commands. If you are my friends, do what I command. Right? This isn't an intimacy thing necessarily. This is an authority thing. Following Jesus is not about doing the right thing and being a good person. At its core, following Jesus is receiving and responding to the love of God shown through Jesus. No greater love is shown than laying down your life, and God showed his love and his might through the death resurrection of Jesus, carving a path for all people to know and be known by God intimately and lovingly. And so Jesus' command isn't don't do anything wrong, don't do this, don't do that. It is love one another as I have loved you. Experience the eternal and abundant life that I am offering and then pass it on. Be a reflection of that eternal and abundant life. Love one another. Lay down your life for one another. And, and despite our falling short in that command, Jesus will continue to make us more faithful partners of God so that we can continue expanding his goodness into all creation. But I disagree with them. Love one another, but they hurt me. Love one another, but they don't deserve it. Love one another. And this idea is very like, overly simplistic in calling and, and very complicated in activation. But it is the command of Jesus coming from the authority of mighty God that we would be a people of love towards one another and a blessing to those who are in and surrounding the church. And so this isn't an idea where it's like a step-by-step, this is how you love everyone. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is a reality that should cause us to pause, to think, and to struggle with what active love looks like in our lives. Because love is not being a doormat. Love is not affirming sin or being apathetic towards destruction. Because Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't, uh, but he also didn't write people off. Right? He didn't burn bridges because he disagreed with them. He was called the friend of sinners by others because that is where he dwelt. He sat in brokenness. He asked questions. He listened tirelessly. He offered healing through, through a renewed understanding of God. Right? He never hid what he believed or knew regarding God and sin and redemption, but he also never saw people as problems to be solved right? or, or pre-conversions. There were people of either eternal beauty as they knew the gospel and followed it or eternal horror as they walked away from the goodness of God into separation. And so he framed every conversation, every moment with eternity in mind. And so this is the question. How do, how do we frame these moments with eternity in mind? We're coming up to Christmas. Your houses might be a little bit more open than they were. Other people's houses might be a little bit more open than they were. What does it mean to actively love? Right? What does it mean to step out of our comfort zone in inviting the single person to Christmas who doesn't fit kind of like our nuclear understanding of inviting family, right? What does it mean for the estranged son or daughter to come into a house that is reflect, that's a reflection of, of the hope that we have in Jesus? What does it mean to, to not burn bridges over things this, this holiday season? The command to love is written into the Christmas story, and, and I'll invite the team to come up.
The command to love is written into the Christmas story because the command to love is written into the nature of God. His might displayed in his life and his teaching and miracles pointing towards a new creation where everything will be set right. His might displayed on the cross where he took on the entirety of of rebellion and brokenness and sin so that we could walk in a covenantal relationship and intimacy with God the Father. His might in the resurrection where he accomplished what only God Almighty can do, bringing himself back from the dead and establishing his authority even over life's greatest enemy, which is death. And so I'll ask again, who who is God to you? As as a believer, is God, Jesus, this friend who, you know, wishes he could do more than he can, but he's, he's there for you. It's Jesus King who establishes might and authority through what he has done in the past, what he continues to do in the present, what he's calling you to in the future. For those who don't, maybe, maybe you're not walking in a belief in God right now. What do you do with this story? This message of, of hope and peace, this beginning and end, these are the questions that as this holiday season approaches, you get to wrestle with. And I think as you continue to wrestle, as you continue to seek truth, you'll find Jesus as the mighty God, as he's been displayed throughout thousands of years. Jesus is God Almighty. Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, he is evidence of God's might. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning and that we could spend... uh, a lot of time in your word, packing your name with might, packing your name with glory that it deserves. Father, as we seek to know you in greater ways, would we surrender to you? Not because uh, you are some domineering God who uses his might to, uh, to squash or destroy, but because your might was revealed through your love. And greater love has, is nothing. Uh, greater love is, there's no greater love than laying down one's life for, for a friend. And you lay down your life for us. And so, God, as we know this love, as we experience this love, would this love then instruct and transform us as we leave this place? As we know and are known by you, would we make you known to others? God, I, I thank you. I praise you. I pray all this in your name.